0: In case you missed it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on
1: News Talk.
2: Hello, I'm Jane Vogel. This is my mum, Rose Williamson. Rose lives independently in a a little apartment beside me.
3: She's just had her 99th birthday. Congratulations, Rose. How does it feel to get the vaccination? No, brother. I thank the Lord for the wonderful.
4: Science is, is so you thank the Lord
5: for the wonderful scientists for discovering it, and uh, the vaccine, and when are you turning 100? Next summer, uh, get me check. Strictly boring. Uh, so
6: you're going to be dancing? <laughs> my name is uh, Jason Hennessy, and this is my grandmother, Christine Hennessy, just got vaccinated today. I'm so happy about it. It's been a long time. So how
7: are you feeling? I feel all right, thanks. And you look great for 86. Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs>
3: Henry McKean reporting. Hello and a very good morning to you. Now, have you ever wondered about the evolution of swearing and why some of the worst swear words in the world are religious in nature? Well, take a listen to this.
8: And
5: as you said before, um, uh, using religious profanities uh, was a big thing. And and, and again, was that more acceptable in the medieval period and then became unacceptable? And when did that happen?
2: Uh so in the medieval period, so when the C word and all these other things were, were not swear words, that then that was the kind of high point of religious language. And um there were all kinds of um sort of laws against, you know, profane swearing and cursing. Um there are sermons about it, books published about, you know, how terrible this is um and then it's uh, once you kind of get to the 16th 17th century that's when you really start to get the the sexual words and the the excremental words coming into power as those religious words are losing their force
5: um and so a religious swearing now wouldn't have much force For
2: most people, it doesn't. It's and again, it's it's, you know, you probably could put someone in an MRI machine and see what parts of their brain light up if you say, you know, God versus the F word. Mm. But yeah, for most people, you know, like OMG texting, you know, in the Middle Ages, you just didn't use the name of the Lord in vain like that. That was a big sin. But now, you know, people don't even realize that that's that possibly could have been bad, you know, texting OMG.
5: Um, And and I suppose that kind of like that there are, well, racial slurs, I don't know if they come under a strict definition of of swearing anyway, uh, uh, rather than they're just uh, uh, straight insults.
2: Well, I would say they are swear words because they, right now, those are the words that have these most powerful effects. Like if, you know, you really want to get Someone's palm sweating. Those are the <laughs> right now. Those are the ways to to do it. Like they just have their, I would say, the worst words in the language right now.
5: Mm, uh, well, yeah, certainly. Uh, um, but uh, but those kind of words one imagines. Are probably you know are in a process of dying out as they become increasingly uh, uh, unacceptable, uh, and and might this well happen to the other to, to say the c word for instance? You know why you know why is a part of a woman's anatomy uh, uh, deemed to be an offensive thing?
2: Yeah, no, I think that will change, and I think definitely there's a difference in say Ireland and the United States with the way people can can use that word now. Um, you know, in in America, it's still you know, really, really bad and people, friends don't, male friends don't call each other that and mm. it's not, you know, it, it's quite, it, it's a real insult. Whereas I, I have the impression that in um, some other places like Australia, Britain, Ireland, that, you know, it, it can be this almost a term of endearment and that's, mm. you know, part of the
5: Yeah, sorry, that might that... be an Australian thing. I wouldn't think that's an Irish thing.
2: Um, not an Irish thing.
5: No, no, <laughs> no. We now we will use we will use the F word with wild abandon, uh, uh, and, uh-huh. uh, and I I defy any other nation on earth to have used the F word uh, with such dexterity as we do. We use it as a verb, an adverb, a noun, uh, any uh, any kind of combination you like, and. Uh, uh, I always kind of got the, uh, uh, like to say, Americans would be more offensive, offended by uh, the F-word than Irish would be. We, Irish people do. We kind of use it almost in a friendly way sometimes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, I think America is, is several decades behind in its kind of evolution <laughs> of swearing. <laughs> what an
3: interesting history of swearing. Journalist and writer Melissa Moore from Munkrieff. On Friday Kieran Cudahy spoke to Mother Tracy Carroll about the intense challenges her daughter Willow faces.
9: You used a, c- a couple of phrases Tracy you said about uh, how you'd fight for Willow and then you use another phrase when Push came to shove. I mean that's the fundamental flaw in the whole system isn't it oh, yeah. is that is that you have to fight and oh, the ja- yeah. and push has to come to shove I oh, mean it really and does. You're, you're obviously, look, a great credit to Willow and you're out there fighting for her. And there's other parents who I'm sure are, look, just as dedicated to their children and love their children just as much. But just through personality type or temperament well, or whatever, it. it just doesn't suit them. It doesn't, you know, it's not becoming of them to, to be out there kind of no. banging the drum. And, and they go without. And
8: and that's what I've said from the beginning. You know, my husband would be very quiet and he wouldn't be like me at all. I could see sometimes, you know, going, oh, she going again. <laughs> but, you know, if if parents like me don't get out and do it then so many more get lost mm. in in the system you and shouldn't
9: have to though tracy isn't no that
8: the point? no you really shouldn't i mean when willow was born it was a brain injury at birth it wasn't expected and we were lost in the grief for so long and you know when a naval island came on board i just wanted them to go away i didn't want to be told constantly what the issues were and then you know as, as things start to change and you accept this you know you'd either just kind of roll along with it and just take whatever you're given or you'll actually say that this is not good enough and we need to stand and fight for change and we shouldn't have to. You know, the services should be better. The system needs to change. And I worked in special needs 20 years ago and then had a complete career change. So I've come from both sides of this Mm. and I actually feel that we've got so far behind to where we were 20 years ago where we went from, you know, these... (coughs) well, I suppose they would call them residential units, but, you know, these campuses where everything was there, the schools, services too, you know, wanting to roll out this these community-based systems, and so much was lost in the middle. So they jumped from one idea to this notion of another idea, and they've lost so much. You know, it, the whole thing really needs to be just taken apart, evaluated, and a proper system put in place. And the biggest failing is that there's people making decisions for our children and for families like ours who don't live the day-to-day, who don't really see the fights and the struggles that families have to put in or the needs for the children or the children's rights. You know, Willow is not a disability. Willow is a child. She's my daughter. I have a son and a daughter and they're equal in our eyes. Mm. They give as much joy to this home equally. And, you know, they need to engage with parents Parents need to be brought in to all planning, you know, and, and really listen to the voices that are living this day to day instead of well, making decisions for us on, you know, their thoughts yeah. for what might work.
9: Well, because
8: I can tell you now, it's not working. And if it doesn't change fast, you know, there's going to be so many people lost through the cracks. Well, it's really not on, you know.
3: What an incredibly brave mother, Tracy Carroll there, from The Children with Kieran Cuddehy. On Monday, terminal patient advocate John Wall joined Andrea Gilligan on Lunchtime Live.
10: I've said this all along, it's together that we're going to, to, to fight our way out of this, to, to get back to a normality. You know, this summer we need something, we need that ray of hope that Paul Reid discussed, discussed this morning. It's not just a little sliver of hope, we need a ray of hope, we need to trust what's been said by the people that we have entrusted to manage this crisis it's very important and people are losing that you saw over the weekend of the phoenix park along the the beaches in the west coast and the southeast etc you saw people congregating and you can't blame them because they're losing hope the slightest hint of good weather and the longer days and how how are we going to manage that if we don't if we don't trust the people that are managing us
8: so you think better messaging john completely
10: mm-hmm. it has to be it has to be a unified approach from our system and um, For everyone that's entrusted with, with telling us what is and what is not going to happen, we need to trust what they're saying. And we're losing that trust. And that's a, it's a serious, serious problem right across the divide. You can see every single day there's more and more people getting frustrated. And, you know, our mental health, Andrea, it's so important mm. and it's going to be as important as the COVID pandemic itself, as this as this progresses,
8: we heard Ada, one of our callers there, just you know, you said you heard her there just about five minutes ago before the one o'clock news, talking about the impact that not being able to travel to see her partner, you know, of two years in in America, is is having on on her. Um, and there's pl- plenty more, you know, like her as well. I have to say too, texting into us here on the the news talk text line today. Um, John, we've talked to you previously here on Lunchtime Live about your own situation. Um, how are you doing at the moment?
10: I'm doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, like everybody else, I'm doing the best that I can. But it, it has been a struggle at times. Um, again, I go back to that, that mental health challenge that I'm a, I'm a positive person. And uh, I look forward with a degree of positivity and hope. And that's been gradually uh, eroded. Um, not a great day personally today, you know. just okay. uh, what, what I call a grey day, it, and it's just mm. um, the body and the mind just just aren't doing what you'd like them to do. But that's okay too. We, you know, we talk about it, and that's, it's important that that we we respectfully air our views in public, and uh, we, we those that talk about it that that we do so responsibly. And it's so important to talk, not to keep this bottled up because it is causing a huge problem. I've, I've heard quite a few stories of, unfortunately, lives that have been lost as a result of COVID, but not from COVID. And that's people that have tragically taken their own lives based on the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And these are these are hidden statistics, but they're, they're not just numbers, they're people, they're families, and they're just as important as people that, uh, that die tragically uh, with COVID and from COVID. And this has to be recognised as a society, that we, we have to manage it. We have to manage expectations. We have to manage our mental health. But we need, we need help with doing that. And I, I feel at the moment we're not getting it. The narrative is all about one thing and one thing only, which we, we absolutely need. We, but there are so many other consequences as a result of sometimes what is happening. But also what I feel certainly is not happening and what's been miscommunicated at the moment and I won't necessarily say mismanaged. I think there are, at this stage, we should be doing better as a, as a nation. And we're not. And that's you know where we find ourselves. And it's where a lot of the frustration, I think, for many is creeping in at the moment. And those that would have been absolutely rigid in terms of 5K and adhering to absolutely every element of the lockdown restrictions are beginning to question. Oh, hold on here. We, we cannot keep doing this indefinitely. During that uh, video clip I used the expression, pinned in like animals and that's what a lot of us feel at the moment. We don't want to feel like that. We want to do what we can to ensure that that, that pen is opened and okay. then we can get out safely. Yeah. But it, it's just hard to see it at the moment.
3: The courageous John Wall from Lunchtime Live.
10: The Cervical Check Clinical
11: Director, really interesting intervention yesterday Kira, and I know you'll be, you are very interested in this. Noreen, Dr Noreen Russell Warning a lack of trust in screening programs is causing women with cervical cancer, cervical cancer to put their lives and health at risk she 's talking about there 's big Uh, recruitment difficulties caused by the fallout of the 2019 uh, controversy in terms of recruiting people uh, to work uh, in the laboratories. She said at the moment we would not be able to make our majority lab in Ireland because there is a plan to set up a lab here. But basically she's saying we are struggling to get people to join screening because of the atmosphere that we have. There's a very real risk if the environment doesn't change we will not have a screening programme. She said... um, They're hearing from cancer specialists that women are not trusting the screening uh, services and they are actually choosing uh, what she describes as weird and wacky stuff such as vitamin C infusions and also unproven treatment. This is uh, terrifying.
12: Yeah. And you know what, Shane? It is hardly surprising because the politicians rubbished cervical check from a height. The media rubbished cervical check from a height. And both of those groups failed to understand the complexities of screening. They failed to understand that false negatives didn't automatically mean negligence. They failed to understand uh, that, you know, that all the different intricacies around audit and that audit was what it was actually designed to do. There has been a massive understanding gap in how society here in Ireland has looked at cervical check. Cervical check delivers as good a screening system. I, I, I respect entirely what Gabriel Scali said about the communications failures. Oh yeah.
11: There was, uh, w- sorry, we should that, stress. That's a we different We are not issue. suggesting there no. was not failures. There were there absolutely There were communication failures.
12: failures but the actual screening programme delivers as good a screening programme as anywhere in the world. But with all the rubbishing of it, women... That message I don't think has gotten through to them and, you know, that has undermined it for people and it is a huge concern and it's not just a concern around cervical check, it's a concern around breast check too. We have a situation where our screening systems here in this country are under pressure and they're under pressure because of I think populist and weak politicians, and a media that's failed to actually drill into the issues at hand, and have done hand wringing and, and finger wagging rather than actually any kind of decent investigative or informative journalism. So, to there be was
11: a frenzy uh, it was a around frenzy. the time, and as you say, misinformation, inaccuracies put forward um, by by politicians, by sections of the media. We have to hold our hands up in the media as well. I mean that inaccuracy uh, it persisted for a long time. That the health outcome might have been different if they had been informed of the audit. That persisted. I heard opposition politicians making that statement I think some people still believe afterwards. that now yeah.
12: and that's not the case. Just to be very clear, the moment any woman was diagnosed with cancer, she was treated. There was never a gap between finding out someone had cancer and treating them. There was never a gap. What there was was when they trawled back, when they looked at women with cancer and they trawled back and looked at their screening, they saw that on some of those there were false negatives. It is debatable and that is why people have ended up in court. It is debatable whether or not those false negatives are are negligent or not.
3: Shane and Kira on News Talk Breakfast. On Friday, Jonathan Healy spoke to documentary maker Paul Rice about LGBT life in Russia. Here's a short clip.
13: Well, you know, I think there are, you know, so many kind of reasons in the background as as to why I want to make this film. But I think probably the most urgent reason really was born out of the fact that, you know, the LGBT plus community, you know, all over the world, you know, we've really lost so many of our heroes, people like Harvey Milk and Marsha P. Johnson, who have, you know, fought for greater LGBT plus rights all over the world, you know, we've lost them to assassinations, to violence, um, to HIV AIDS. And, you know, what's happening in Russia right now, the LGBT plus Russians have no rights whatsoever. They're really at the beginning of their journey to 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 get greater human rights. And I know I just really wanted to you know, go past, you know, the news headlines of what it was like to be LGBT plus in Russia and meet with these heroes who are really, you know, the boots on the ground that are trying to to get these rights. And it's I just it felt like a really important story that I wanted to to bring to a wider audience.
0: Going to Russia, though, with your boyfriend, Liam, uh, was that not an inherent risk, given that you were quite literally making a Russia about a, a movie in Russia about how LGBT rights uh, were not being respected?
13: Absolutely, yeah. It, it it absolutely was a risk, and you know, I think you know, fear was kind of a, a you know a constant backdrop uh, for us, you know, while we were in Russia. But you know, I think once we actually w- really met with these people, you know, our fears kind of really got put into perspective because you know, ultimately, you know, we were tourists. You know, we we could leave at really at, at any moment, and um, whereas, you know, this is their lives. You know, th- these are their realities, and I think. Meeting with them, it kind of calmed our fears down a bit and really put them into perspective.
0: Yeah, You were coming from a country, though, that had legalised gay marriage, where discussions about gay rights are, are very common now, um, and, and going to a country that was the polar opposite. Uh, did, did you feel that you could fall into a trap at any point um, and all of a sudden find yourself on the receiving end of what is a pretty brutal state approach?
13: Oh, absolutely. You know, we, we tried to be as prepared as possible. And, you know, we we set up, you know, many, you know, interviews uh, beforehand with people to to really try and make sure we were going to meet with who people were saying they were. But we were we were catfished constantly. You know, people so many people emailed us and messaged us pretending to be someone they're not. And, you know, we would do a deeper dive into these email addresses and find inevitably that so many of them were connected to to far-right and extremist uh, groups that wanted to to lure us and um, to, I suppose, um, beat us up or or worse when we were in Russia. So we were very, very vigilant, um, I think, beforehand. And uh, so, yeah, it was was definitely a a genuine concern.
0: We heard reference to the gay propaganda law in 2013. I suppose to give that a bit of context, that would mean that for example, Milk, the film we were talking about the other day with Bill Hughes, and It's a Sin, Mm. that Channel 4 show about the AIDS crisis in in Britain in the 1980s, they wouldn't be allowed to be shown in Russia because they would be viewed as gay propaganda. Is that correct?
13: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's it's to the point where if a same-sex couple held hands in public on the street in Moscow, they could potentially be fined or jailed for doing that.
3: Producer and documentary maker Paul Reitz from the Pat Kenny Show. In case you missed it
13: with Susan Cahill.
0: A look back at the week on News Talk.
3: Now this week, documentary on News Talk explores the burning in 1922 of one of our greatest national treasures, the Public Records Office. Here's a short clip from Charred Remains.
13: The Public Record Office of Ireland was six storeys high above a basement. It was full in 1922. It had been full since before the First World War. They were starting to ask for more space. The entire Chancery Rolls collection was roughly six or seven shelves. All those rolls could have been stored on six or seven shelves in one bay of the public record office. And it's very rich in information in those six or seven shelves. If you multiply that out, what was destroyed in the building, it, it does become mind boggling. We're talking about millions of historical records.
14: So we know what we lost, and we know how we lost it. To me, the loss of the census records, because we know how valuable they can be from the way that people have used the 1901 and 1911 census, that is the great loss, the loss of details of the ordinary population of this country that just vanished in a puff of smoke. I suppose part of this is a class issue too. I've often thought about it, that census records generally refer to ordinary people. Of course, they cover everybody. So you're going to get the Lord Lieutenant living in in the Viceregal Lodge with 34 servants and all his visitors and a vast amount of luxury. But you're also going to get ordinary people living in tenements in Dublin and people living in rural uh, labourers' cottages. And I think, generally, in terms of historiography, until the rise of social history in the mid-20th century, the whole business of the ordinary person didn't matter all that much. And that starts to change in the 20th century greatly to everyone's benefit. So, in the 19th century, when the Public Record Office was built in 1867, and uh, when it was being stocked with all of the records that went into it, it's unlikely that anybody thought that census records were important for scholarship. And genealogy had not become the huge industry that it has since become. You did not have the same huge interest in family
15: history because that wasn't important to people then. And yet, 100 years later, people are so hungry for that information because they realise it provides them with such a direct connection with their past. The census returns of 1901 or 1911 that they can begin... The individual process of excavating their family history or their family tree.
3: From Charter Mains on Documentary on News Talk. On Tuesday, Shane Coleman took a walk through Dublin's north inner city for News Talk breakfast. Here's Noel Wardick. The CEO of Dublin City Community Cooperative.
15: We need a policing response immediately to the increase in crime. Community policing is, is what's required. But equally, public health and violence are absolutely inextricably connected. Violence and crime must be treated as a public health response, not a law and order response. Like we have sections of this community subjected to neglect for, for decades and subjected to intergenerational poverty and disadvantage that needs to be addressed with a holistic approach.
11: How much of it is down to housing, do you think?
15: And education? Well, that's a huge factor, and we have examples of very good accommodation. And then over here on the left, Shane, uh, is Buckingham Village. That's appalling. Like, I'm sure there's breaches in regulation left, right, and centre in, in that place. It's impossible to live a normal life and a healthy life and bring up a family if you don't have suitable housing and suitable accommodation. And nearly all the schools in the North Inner City are desh schools. Educational disadvantage still remains a big issue in the area, despite the significant improvements over the last number of years. Okay, listen, we might take a little stroll around the area. Yeah, yeah, great.
11: We made our way up to Summerhill to meet Paddy Murdiff, who has lived in the area for 16 years.
5: There's really good camaraderie around here.
11: Paddy has a real grow for the community, but admits it faces its share of difficulties.
5: I always found it a breeding community. I still do. It's just mainly drug thing. That's one of the things that I object to. We always seem to have that and it's been going back years and years, generations and it needs to be stamped out here.
11: Paddy thinks the the locality's issue with drugs and crime could be improved with better youth services.
5: All the kids, the youths, give no amenities, there's nothing, no playgrounds, nothing really. It's a brilliant community, it just needs a lot of care and attention.
11: We then went on to our next location on Sean McDermott Street, true areas renowned for open drug dealing. Several Garda cars passed us en route and Noel asks us to put away our microphones and cameras for the short walk.
15: I might just... Um put these in the bag maybe just in case it's a little
11: bit yeah there we met Daryl O'Callaghan who grew up in the area in the shop he now owns and runs Daryl says running a business on Sean McDermott Street comes with its challenges
7: there's people that that have a certain perception of this community so when they're walking down even if they need a drink or a smoke or maybe credit for their phone a shop on Sean McDermott Street is not exactly where they're going to stop and unless the perception of that changes it's always going to be harder to run a business there than anywhere else are you seeing improvements? I've definitely seen improvements even like the people i've grown up with some of them have better careers than their parents and there's probably less broken homes less you know local incarceration as well but an improvement on a situation that was very low or almost rock bottom isn't great the improvements kind of need to happen a lot faster because it's people's lives it's children's futures it's people's retirement there's very little will to change anything the will from people in this community is at this stage it's worn down Everywhere else, whether you go to police, the government, the council, the politicians, it's either non-existent or misdirected. And there's a big lack of people reaching out to the right people people who've been through it and putting them in a the positions to make change. You're, you're staying in this area, you're not going anywhere. Unfortunately, I have two young children who I want to rear and there's a lot of obstacles and a lot of problems and a lot of things in this community which I'll do my best to shield them from. And unfortunately, that means probably keeping them out of parts of this community as much as possible. I wish it was different, but it's too risky.
11: Just a stone's throw from Daryl shop, however, stands St Mary's Mansions, a really impressive €23 million Euro regeneration project. Noel says the housing development shows what can be achieved when resources are invested in disadvantaged communities.
15: Yeah, Mary's Mansions here in, in Charmanty is an example of proper regeneration where poor housing is transformed into really modern, positive housing where, where people in a local community can be proud to live in and be comfortable to live in and and raise their children so for us it shows that when the necessary resources are invested we can transform communities and therefore that says to us that the the years of neglect and disadvantage there's just no excuse for it and interestingly enough Mary's Mansion is backs on to Liberty Park which was basically commandeered by drug dealers for many years and lost to the community but now the community is in the process of reclaiming that park and with ourselves and community organisations and with the assistance of the Gardaí we're looking forward to transforming Liberty Park back into what it used to be at the heart of the community here and a place where kids played freely and celebrated so there's really positive examples here in the NEIC of success and it's side by side with I suppose the worrying aspect of disadvantage and crime and violence that needs to be addressed immediately
3: Noel Wardick from Youth Talk Breakfast. Now on Off the Ball this week, John Duggan explored the art of football commentary.
4: You were also at the infamous Cantona kick game in mm. Somers Park uh, in 1995, John. Could you believe what you were saying when it was going on? No, I mean, I, I owe Eric Cantona a huge debt of gratitude because he basically helped me get a television career. Because as, as I understand it, the way it was told to me, I was doing the radio I suppose Radio 2 would have become Radio 5 in the UK by then, so the Radio 5 commentary, with Mark Bright, the old Palace player of Crystal Palace against Manchester United, which, on the face of it, was a a run-of-the-mill midweek Premier League game. Um, And suddenly, this incident, um, Cantona, I mean, Barry and George would be well aware of Cantona's days when he would brood through a game and you know that something was going to happen. And this was one of those nights, um, and eventually uh he snapped and the referee sent him off for a challenge I think on Richard Shaw of Crystal Palace and as he walked down the touchline um I was I was talking and we were reflecting about the fact that he'd been sent off and then suddenly we just saw him take off and leap two footed into the crowd and land his studs in the in the chest of a, a spectator and at that point as again my eminent colleagues here have said I think instinct emotion um the the enormity of what happens dictates what you say and what you don't say and so I, I, I couldn't really tell you to this day what what I said um, but whatever it was struck a chord with Jonathan Martin who was the the long-serving head of sport at the BBC who I'm led to leave, believe was watching in his or listening in his bath that night to the commentary and they were looking for someone to to come in numerically to replace John Motson certainly not man for man but I think John was going to have a, a bit of a break from broadcasting um, and off the back of that I got the I got the gig. Uh, my, my main memory of that night is nothing that I said but just the contribution of Mark Bright as the co-commentator who only came up with three words to sum up the moment which were, oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> That's well. and that, that probably was all that was required so yes Eric Cantona has been um, has been influential in my career, and also helped me get my, very briefly, also helped me get my move to America, because to to work over here, you have to jump all sorts of hurdles in terms of your eligibility and suitability for employment. And they employ high-powered lawyers to get you the required visa to work in America, which includes having testimonials from famous people on whom you've commentated. So when I signed my contract over here, before I could do so, this 85-year-old employment lawyer, Elizabeth Leet of New York City was deputed to, to get my visa for me. So somehow she tracked down Michael Owen and various other people, David Beckham, and spoke to them and got them to write letters of recommendation. But her biggest achievement was ringing Eric Cantona on a film set in the south of France to ask if he would <laughs> write a letter of support <laughs> off the back of the fact that I'd commentated on, on him.
13: Brilliant story. John. Astonishing.
4: Astonishing.
3: <laughs> Terrific stuff there from legendary football commentator John Champion from off the ball
1: everybody thinks my head's full of nothing they wanna put their own special stuff in fill up the space No holding my head. Too bad. They call me a deep for this and the other. Call me a puppet on the street. You bring out what.
3: Tom Jones has heard on The Tom Dunn Show. In case you
10: missed
0: it, with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk
16: they don't have a lot of money and like my first thought was just like a child who uh, grows up in direct provision and they just can't get a cake because their parents can't afford it a child doesn't understand why um, he lives in these conditions and like he might just want to feel special on that one day and if their birthday is just as every other day like There's nothing special about it.
17: Meet Francisca, the brains behind a fast-growing initiative called Considerate Cakes.
16: I heard about direct provision and I just wanted to make it a little bit better and I'm just like, I think that you can make the world a better place with the little things.
17: People living in direct provision can request a cake from Considerate Cakes for their child, their partner or a friend. The order's passed on to a volunteer someone who likes to bake and is willing to set aside some free time to make and deliver a birthday cake to somebody living in direct provision. Since its inception last summer, 250 people have signed up to be a volunteer baker and over 400 cakes have been delivered. One such baker is Tiffany, who remembers one of her first bakes for a woman named Princess.
2: And she's sitting in the lobby, like, waiting, and she sees us pull up and she comes, no joke, running out of the lobby, like just like screaming and i I was like taken back like laughing so hard and she takes the cake it's in a box takes the cake out of the box she's got like her boyfriend who's following her she goes take pictures take pictures like takes the cake out of the box starts posing with the cake it just made her whole day and she told us that over and over again
17: Naima has lived in a direct provision centre in Clondalkin for the past six years. She coordinates cake requests for the more than 200 people currently living there. She says Considerate Cakes has really changed how birthdays are celebrated in the centre. Not everybody was
18: celebrating birthdays. Maybe not everybody could afford to get a birthday cake. But this has changed now. People know that there is somebody who cares enough to uh, uh, bake them a birthday cake. Their reaction is amazing. Like some people text me, they're like, oh, we are speechless. We don't even know how to say thanks. And can you please communicate that to Francisca and the baker that we, how grateful we
16: are.
17: When requesting a cake, people are asked what flavour they want, what colour they want, a theme they have in mind, something that's very important to Francisca.
16: So, like, they live in um, direct provision and they can't decide what they want to eat. So they have, like, a cafeteria where they get their food, which is probably not even, like, adapted to their culture. So, like, we enable them also to choose exactly what they want. So they can say, okay, I want a pineapple apple cake or something like this, So, which is, like something we would, you wouldn't get in the store and it's just something really special because they can get the perfect cake for them. Children can get themed cakes with their favorite princesses or spider. We have a lot of Spider-Man cakes and stuff like this and you know like it makes a difference because we give them the chance to also decide something which they can't a lot of times in direct provision. Casey O'Reardon
3: reporting there
16: for Moncrief.
9: Brent, uh, I mean, uh, 10 years ago, it's probably hard to believe that, that that 10 years has passed. Can you take us back to that time, to, to 2011? I, kn- I know you were here in Ireland when the earthquake hit. When did you learn about it? How did you learn about it?
18: Um... I learned about it pretty quickly. I mean, just to sort of preface that, I mean, you know, growing up in New Zealand, uh, we'd always been accustomed to kind of some mild tremors. It just become a part of living in New Zealand. We're on the earthquake uh, on the earthquake zone there that stretches, I think, from around from San Francisco through. So we're on that belt. So you always grew up, you know, having to dive under desks at school and everything like that. Mm. Um, but um, I first learned about it. I got a call from a friend. Um, because of the time difference, uh, just to say, had I had I, I think it was in the in the middle of the night or whatever, I got that call. But just had I tried to contact uh, my parents because I knew my mother was in a uh, a horse racing racing meeting in. Uh, in the city centre uh, when it when it happened. So I was frantically trying to contact home, as you do in these circumstances, to find out that they're okay. And mum was still in Christchurch, and we only got in touch with her a couple of hours later. But thankfully she was okay. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, others weren't so lucky. I mean, our next-door neighbour who... Um, who didn't make it home, unfortunately, um, was a, a, a young man with a, a young family. Uh, so mm-hmm. there were lots of horrific, horrific stories. Uh, um, you know of the people caught in the uh, cathedral, going up the tourists, going up the uh, up the tower at the time when it collapsed. Uh, you know there was a half a bus, half a bus uh, fell into a, into a gaping hole in, in Christchurch, where half the people on the front half of the bus uh, lost their lives and. and, and and the others right. didn't. So, uh, but what a uh, you know, we of not of swapping sort of horrific stories. But one story I learned of out there was a guy who was a um, who was a, a marathon runner, uh, not known to me, but known to friends of mine. And he um, heard news of the earthquake, and his family were in Sumner, which is a little bit out of town, and it's 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 the tunnel was closed, so he. He uh, he stopped at the tunnel and then chose to run up around the uh, sort of the hills around the back of the uh, at the, at the uh, of the tunnel and was unfortunately lost his life to a falling boulder that had been um, shaken loose by the by the earthquake. So God. it wasn't just there were a lot of stories like that, yeah. but. I went back soon after, and I just saw the devastation of a of a of a city that was uh, was beautiful. It still it still is, but it lost its kind of heart and soul. And, and, and you know, for every year I've gone back, I've seen the the walls around the city uh, where they're going about the the new architecture. And, Of course, people had to move out into the suburbs because there was no. Uh, uh, residents allowed in the city centre. So it meant a change of life for people and it meant a, a, a change of, of where they were going to spend the rest of their life because the city, while it's being rebuilt... You know, New Zealand's not an old country, so yeah. these old schools and that you would have had like parts of of, of Christ College. was a beautiful old school in, in in central Christchurch. Parts of that, parts of the cathedral, which was such a central place, um, you know, they they were lost forever, and 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 that's the unfortunate thing. It'll be a new city, so we'll have lost some of that, lost some of that history. Yeah.
9: But besides the 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 aesthetics, I mean, has Christchurch changed because of that earthquake?
18: Yes, I think, and it's a bit like it's a bit like what what may happen after COVID, in, in a sense, for people because people moved back out to the suburbs. So they got used to socialising and shopping in the suburbs, um, and so the feeling is now that a lot of them aren't going back into the city, uh, the city's probably going to be rebuilt and it's going to be probably, uh, probably young professionals that, that'll rent in there. there. You won't get so many of the people sort of, I suppose, going into town, you know, on a Friday and Saturday night anymore, but simply because they've got used to sort of suburban life over the last, Few years, obviously, it was a lot longer transition period for people. But, uh, yes, there was a feeling because I was certainly, I was certainly in there the year after they had another earthquake. I was in a shop and, uh, you know, there was, there was an amount of panic, um, you know, when TVs were flying off the walls and, and, and stuff like that and the, and the, and the, the room was creaking or whatever. People, people got into a panic situation. So some people, some people had just rebuilt houses at that stage and then to get hit another year later, you know, and, and damage to be done yes. again. So of people moved out of Christchurch, of course. You know, like, property values went down. People, people moved. They, they were, Some people were too scared to to stay there. Families moved to 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 other parts of the country, so it had a had a huge effect for a while.
3: Rugby Pundit and author Brent Pope from the Heart Shoulder with Kieran Cuddyhe. On Saturday, John Farty spoke to actor Hugh Bonneville for Scream Time. So Roald Dahl himself, I read some of the reviews, which I try not to do, but for
19: some reason I did. And they said, you know, you're good at being how cranky he was. And and my memory of him, seeing him as a kid on TV and interviews, was that he was very cranky. But I actually thought your portrayal was quite jolly at times. Like, it wasn't just curmudgeonly. Did you do a lot of getting around who he was? Did you read up a lot to, to be as true to it? Or, again, is it acting? Do you just... Take it on board and go where you're going to go with it.
6: Well, no, we uh, the, the, our, our writers, uh, John and Dave, they they did many many iterations, and I and I kept saying we need to, you know, don't shy away from the fact that he was a he was quite a dark man, uh, yeah. in, 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 you know, by many accounts at, at at many points. He was also very entertaining when yeah. he wanted to be. Um, you know, I've met actually anecdotally. I've met a couple of people who, who uh, have, you know, of a senior generation now, who who say, "Oh, when I was a kid, I, I got my book signed by him in a in a book launch." And I yeah. said, "Oh, that must have been fun." And they said, "No, no, he was he hated being there. You could tell him <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't fun at all." So he was a man. He didn't take any prisoners. You know, and um, yeah. he was a he was a, a probably you know clearly a tough man to live with. But he also had great wit, and I think he and Patricia—that's why when it clicked, they they really had a very fine relationship for a long long time they were married 30 years um it didn't last ultimately but uh but they you know they had children together and um, and he was devoted to those children clearly um even though he was also clearly a man with uh, volatility he uh, he suffered a lot of pain himself he you know he'd crashed in the desert uh, uh, and been in hospital for months um they'd had this accident with Theo and then the loss of Olivia you know this was a a, a very complex uh, man and a complex relationship and so that was uh, it, that was interesting to play but uh, I'm, I'm i'm you know i think you can't just play um It would have been quite dull to just to play the curmudgeonly um, dark man throughout.
19: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure I'm not the first person to say this, but the strange dovetailing of events, like it's not a spoiler, Olivia dies of measles. If that was today, she'd probably be... Never even hospitalized. And here we are talking about vaccines today. And I know you've been even volunteering in a vaccine center in the UK. This dovetailing of events must be spine tingling for you in a way, is it?
6: It's very strange. You know, whenever you make a film that's suddenly strange resonances, you know, ping around that you've never anticipated. Um, you know, we we shot this over a year ago before the pandemic. Um and uh, But Roald and Patricia were passionate advocates of the measles vaccine when it became available. Um, a reliable one wasn't available when Olivia died. Yeah. And uh, he writes, writes eloquently about the pain of that loss and also about you know, the simple fact that had there been a vaccine, my daughter would still be alive. Please take the vaccine. Uh, and so, you know, it's a discussion that's going on all over the world right now. Um, and uh, I, I I am in the camp that believes the vaccine is a vital tool in getting us out of this mess that the world is in. And, um, you know, I sincerely hope that those who, uh, uh, you know, have not yet had it will, um, will consider doing so.
3: The lovely Hugh Bonneville there from Screen Time with John Fardy. And of course, you can tune into John every Saturday evening from 6 till 7. OK, I'm going to leave you with now some superb tricks from mentalist Keith Barry. Have a great weekend. We're
20: going to try reverse mind reading. So, you know, I'm known as a brain hacker trying to get inside people's heads. I thought I'd allow Bobby Carr to get inside my head we'll reverse it. So here's the idea. Bobby, we can't travel right now. So that's why I brought the suitcase but if you were to imagine that I was to go on a holiday with a celebrity right now, who do you think I'd like to go on holidays with? It can be anyone you want in the world, and it doesn't have to be, like, an obvious person. So who do you think I would like to go on holidays with right now? Any celebrity? Um, possibly,
1: I might to say the person, yeah? Yeah, say it out loud. Uh, to go fishing with Kim Kardashian.
20: Kim okay. Kardashian, and, uh, and Kim is about to be single still, but unfortunately I'm still married, so uh, there would be a problem there. But anyway, Kim Kardashian fishing, because I love fishing, as you know, and then if you were to imagine that we knew the last three digits of Kim Kardashian's telephone number, what do you think the last three digits of Kim's telephone number would be?
1: 524.
20: Five, oh my God, I got shivers there. 524. So we've got Kim Kardashian, 524, and then finally, if you were to send me and Kim fishing anywhere in the world, where would you send us? Florida Keys Florida Keys so we've got Kim Kardashian 524 and fishing of course in the Florida Keys now be honest not just for your listeners not just for effect or anything do you believe that in the last couple of seconds that you're inside my head do you believe oh, on any oh. level no, of course you didn't. But like, here's the idea. I believe that information didn't come from your mind. I believe it came from my mind. This luggage tag, just so everybody knows, has been hanging in full view. But about an hour ago, I wrote something down, Bobby, and I laminated it using a laminator inside the house. Read out loud what it says.
1: Go on. No way. Kim Kardashian, 524, Florida Keys. That is absolutely incredible. Inside
20: my tag. And I want to show you that's fully laminated, Bobby, inside no the luggage tag. Fully laminated. Oh, in
1: God's name did you do that?
20: In case you missed it,
8: with Susan Cahill, a look back at the week on News Talk.